everybody. Welcome back to the Taming the True podcast. Today, we're back recapping our most recent journal club. And at this journal club, we tackled a couple of clinical conundrums we face in the care of patients with traumatic injuries where there's concern for cervical spinal injury. Now, we know there are a couple of excellent decision rules to help us when deciding to pursue any imaging in the first place. The nexus criteria that propose that no imaging is required if you have a non-intoxicated patient who is alert without an altered level of consciousness, without a distracting injury, and without midline tenderness, and who is without a focal neurologic deficit. And you also have the Canadian C-spine rule, which are slightly more complicated, but propose that no imaging is required if you have a patient who is less than the age of 65, who did not have a dangerous mechanism of injury, who don't have any extremity paresthesias, and who have a low-risk factor, such as sitting position in the emergency department, delayed onset of pain, etc., etc. And in practice, these decision rules work really well. And there are a couple areas, however, where there's less clarity in the evidence base. What about the concept of clinically clear and radiographically clear? Does an intoxicated patient with a negative cervical spine CT, do they need to wait to be examined once they're clinically sober? Does a negative CT preclude the possibility of a clinically significant injury? To what extent do we need to evaluate for ligamentous injuries in neurologically intact patients with persistent pain? And if we do pursue the possibility of ligamentous injury, what's the best diagnostic strategy? Do we head straight to an MRI, flexion extension films? put patients in collars and let the tincture of time play out. And to address some of these questions, we look at a trio of articles with a discussion led by Drs. Alexis Sabedra, Sarah Continenza, and Collins Harrison. First, we'll start with Dr. Sabedra looking into the utility of flexion extension films. The article that I covered was a paper by Tran et al. It was in the Journal of Surgical Research, and the paper was entitled, Are Flexion Extension Films Necessary for Cervical Spine Clearance in Patients with Neck Pain After Negative Cervical CT Scan? So basically, I mean, there's a lot of different ways at different institutions that people are going to approach clearing cervical collars. Kind of what's become standard of care is often to get uh, non-contrast CTs of the cervical spine. But then what happens in these patients who have persistent neck tenderness when you go to take their cervical collar off? This sort of addresses different approaches that people have to that. And one of those particular approaches is using the flexion extension films. So this study specifically um, was positing that they were going to find that there's actually little value in flexion extension films obtaining those um, to evaluate people with this persistent neck pain. And what this was was a retrospective study. They did a review of charts of 354 patients over a 12-month period at a single level one trauma center, actually just to our north up in Dayton, Ohio. Um, And these 354 patients had all been involved in blunt trauma of some form or another and had subsequently then been awake were considered to be neurologically intact GCS-15 and were non-intoxicated patients um, who then had persistent neck tenderness um, after undergoing their non-contrast CT of their cervical spine. Um, And then subsequently, all of these patients had also undergone flexion extension films. So just to lay the background at this single level one trauma center, they have a specific protocol that they follow there. Um, Essentially, anybody who comes in with trauma with cervical tenderness neurodeficit of any kind, altered mental status, or some type of distracting injury gets a non-contrast cervical spine um, CT. So essentially they follow the nexus criteria and they CT based on that. Now beyond that, um, there's two divergent pathways. If you do have somebody who does have a neurological deficit, presumably on their tertiary assessment, um, they maybe didn't pick up 
first time, those people are going to automatically go on to get MRI. Um, but at this particular institution, um, anybody who does not have a neuro deficit but is still having that persistent tenderness, their uh, protocol was automatically to get flexion extension films in those people. And if that was then read as negative, they would remove the cervical collar. So that was kind of the standard of practice there at the time. Now, the mean age of patients was about 40, 43 years old. Um, about half of them were male, so they had a pretty good distribution um, and kind of in the general age range, uh, you know, kind of middle of the road age range. Um, and all of these were blunt trauma, as I said, um, and that was kind of a distribution of what we would typically see, MVCs, falls. Um, there was a other category. They didn't really go into what that would um, entail specifically, um, but the majority were MVCs and falls. And ultimately what they found, um, they reviewed all of the, all 354 charts, um, and as I said, they both, they all had had CT scans first that had been read as negative, and then all those patients had also undergone the flexion extension film. And out of 354 patients, um, what they f ended up finding was that there were five total that had what was considered a positive flexion extension film um, or some type of abnormality. And out of those five, um, they were managed in one of two ways. Two of those went on to get an MRI, and three of them had what was described as surgical spine uh, consult. It wasn't entirely clear in the article if that meant they were seen by spine surgery while still in the hospital um, versus had some sort of outpatient follow-up, but in some regard they were seen by spine surgery. Um, and in the two patients that had undergone MRI, um, those were both negative and the C collar was subsequently removed. And then of the three people who were ultimately seen by spine surgery, um, it was ultimately determined, and again, it wasn't clear the timeline for this, but the spine surgery ultimately weighed in that whatever was seen on the flexion extension films was actually just reflective of degenerative changes and nothing acute um, or representing any significant injury. And those C collars were also subsequently removed. Um, of note, all five of these patients um, who underwent the flexion extension films, and in fact, of all the patients who underwent any type of imaging and was negative and had no further imaging, none of these patients had any subsequently discovered injuries or neurologic deterioration that was found. Um, and then another interesting thing that they just chose to look at um, was the total charge for all of these flexion extension films um, that were obtained, and out of the 354 patients um, at their institution, the total charge for these uh, over this one-year period was just over $170,000, so almost $500 per person. Um, and essentially, with only five positive flexion extension films that ultimately revealed no actual injury, that's an extra $500 per person, essentially, for a study that added no additional information and then led to additional charges for a few of those patients for the MRI cost, um, as well as whatever expense was entailed from their spine surgery consultation uh, fees. So ultimately, what does this study tell us? Why is it important? Well, it's just one of several studies that's come out um, basically over the last decade that is now suggesting that there's really no utility at all to obtaining these flexion extension films, specifically in this patient population, neurologically intact trauma patients um, who have already had some type of negative imaging. So previously, this, this the idea of doing these flexion extension films was backed up by the 2009 Eastern Association um, for the Surgery of Trauma Guidelines recommending um, that these neurologically intact trauma patients who had this persistent neck pain and negative CT, you could go one of two ways. You could either do the MRI, um, which is what they did, did for these patients subsequently, um, or starting with the flexion extension film first um, before you would clear their cervical collar, being able to remove it if that film was negative. But it seemed like basically what was ultimately being found in a lot of these studies was they were either ambiguous and complete imaging um, or ultimately were leading to finding that there wasn't actually any significant injuries, which has sort of prompted these studies and this data that's been accumulating this growing body of evidence, um, like this study, that ultimately has contributed to updated guidelines in 2015 now um, that have essentially removed flexion extension films as an option at this point, and they're now conditionally recommending that after a negative high-quality CT, 
um, of the cervical spine, it's that's sufficient for removal of the collar, and you really don't need to pursue any further workup. Um, now, of course, they say that's a conditional recommendation. You can't substitute for your clinical gestalt, but that's the new updated guidelines. They do still include the MRI recommendation. You know, if you have any clinical concerns, that that would be your next step, but they don't include um, or endorse in any way doing a flexion extension film anymore. Now, in addition to these studies looking to see if there was any added value um, to getting these films, They've also looked where they show that not only do they show that there are frequent positives that ultimately don't have any true ligamentous injury, um, like in this study, but um, as I mentioned before, they've showed that up to 70% of these films um, are ultimately going to be read as inadequate or incomplete. There's a lot of reasons for this. The main reason is usually just um, technique um, from the radiology techs, and it's not really the radiology techs, you know, not being able to do their job correctly. It's getting the patients to comply with instructions. I mean, obviously, these are patients who are having neck pain, um, or else you wouldn't be going down this line of uh, evaluation anyway. So trying to get a patient who's having neck pain, neck tenderness to fully flex and extend the way that they need to for these films to be adequate is really difficult for them to obtain. And then in addition to the evidence there is now against the flexion extension film, there's now, of course, been numerous studies out there that are demonstrating that there's a really high negative predictive value of the high-quality CT imaging. Um, You know, CT has come a long way. We can get pretty high-resolution images, um, so it's become very reliable at this point for excluding significant uh, unstable C-spine injuries. Um, They're actually reported sensitivity specificities for detecting these types of injuries as 99 and 100% respectively at this point. Um, So not only does obtaining a flexion extension film um, expose these patients to unnecessary radiation, unnecessary expenses, um, but it's also just increasing the incidence of low-value diagnoses in these patients um, and placing them at risk for unnecessary treatments and further costs um, that's really not needed. So I'm not sure, um, you know, they didn't really comment in this article, but I'm sure there's probably a lot of unmeasurable detriments as well that go along with having to be maintained in a cervical collar for two, three weeks while you're waiting follow-up or whatever else is going on in that process before they ultimately get you cleared. Um, So it goes just beyond the unnecessary treatments and monetary costs. Now, of course, um, as with any study, this study certainly has some limitations. Um, It was a very short study, very small study. Um, It was retrospective in nature. And additionally, there was only a single reviewer um, who was going through doing the chart review and collecting all of this information. They weren't very explicit in the article as to what the formal process was of chart review and how they collected all this data. Um, But despite all of um, those shortcomings, Really, the results of this study are still concordant with multiple other studies that have been done looking at the practice of flexion extension films. So ultimately, I think we can still take away that we shouldn't any longer be um, including flex extension films in our algorithm for clearing C collars in neurologically intact patients who have had negative CTs and really should discourage our trauma colleagues from promoting this practice either, especially as it's now updated in their guidelines not to include it. Um, and at the end of the day, it's important to still remember as well, though, that, you know, your clinical gestalt should still be guiding your practice if you truly have some concern um, for some, an underlying significant injury despite your negative CT. You should consider moving on to MRI. Ultimately, what's going to be needed is sort of head-to-head comparison of CT and MRI um, to determine how effective CT is for ruling out ligamentous injury. But um, flexion extension film should really be out of your wheelhouse at this point. Let's uh, move on to Dr. Contenenza talking about what do we do with these patients who come in and uh, are intoxicated, they had a little bit to drink, and they get some neuroimaging? Do we need to really wait until they are, quote-unquote, clinically clear in addition to radiographically clear, or can we just take off the collar after a negative, head C- after a negative cervical spine CT? 
So the article that I explored was entitled Evaluation of Cervical Spine Clearance by Computed Tomographic Scan Alone in the Intoxicated Patients with Blunt Trauma. This study basically asked the question, if we could clear cervical spine precautions or remove the filial hide collar in an intoxicated person with no focal motor deficit in a normal CTC spine. Their outcome measure was any clinically relevant cervical spine injury, which they defined as any injury that required stabilization, either surgically or prolonged immobilization with a Miami J or something similar. This was a prospective observational study involving 1,668 adult patients who underwent CTC spines in March 2014 to 2015 at a level one trauma center. They excluded patients presenting delayed from an index trauma or with a known recent C-spine fracture or surgery. They defined intoxication either as a serum ethanol level over 80 or a urine drug screen positive. They used two millimeter slice CT scans and they were all reviewed by one of eight of board certified radiologists at their institution and two of these were neuroradiologists. They defined time to C-spine clearance as the time from hospital arrival until either the collar was removed or the removal of the C-spine clearance order in the EMR. So their results showed that about 44.2% of their patients were intoxicated, 29.5 of these were by their serum alcohol level, and 24.5 were by their urine drug screen. 316 of these patients were admitted in C-spine immobilization, and 38 of them, or 12% of these admissions, were solely due to intoxication. This decision was made by their trauma attending at the time. Among the 567 patients that they had with normal CT scans, four of them, or 0.7%, had central cord syndrome on exam, and one of them, or 0.2%, had an unstable ligamentous injury that was missed on the initial CT scan or MRI. However, this patient had clear quadriplegia on exam, so there was no missed clinically significant C-spine injuries in all of these patients that they kept the C-collars on for immobilization. In their study, they found that CT overall had a negative predictive value of 99.8% for ruling out a clinically significant cervical spine injury that required immobilization. They cited a sensitivity for their unstable injuries at 91.6%, and that's just of imaging, not even including exam. The mean cervical spine clearance times in this study went from 3.7 hours in their sober patients to 15.1 hours in their unstable patients. Overall, I think this is something that's very applicable to the emergency department population. This is definitely something we encounter daily at our institution. We all have that image of the intoxicated patient arguing with staff about wanting to take the collar off and people trying to convince them to keep it on. It's something that happens often. We discussed in our small groups that it is especially important for discharge patients that we absolutely still monitor these patients until clinical sobriety and that they can have an adequate tertiary exam and are safe for discharge and safe for transport home and whatever method that may be. Some of the limitations of this study that we discussed is that they don't really comment on pain. Um, Alexa in her study really comments well on these patients with persistent pain. The cervical C-spine itself is quite adequate to clear them, but they don't comment on this at all in this study. And additionally, um, we discussed that the negative predictive value is somewhat limited in conditions with a relatively low incidence to begin with, such as unstable cervical spinal cord injuries. So I think one of the things that we can tell from this literature and from our own practical experience is that 
the entity of a uh, clinically, clinically significant ligamentous injury in the setting of a negative cervical spine CT is pretty small, but probably not non-existent. Um, uh, so the question then would be is to what extent must we pursue this, uh, this entity? Um, and then what are the costs that are associated with that? So uh, Dr. Harrison, uh, talk to me about your article. Yeah, so uh, the article I reviewed is titled Cost Effectiveness of uh, MRI and Cervical Spine Clearance in Neurologically Intact Patients with Blunt Trauma. So uh, a similar, similar population that Alexa's article covered. Um, this was published in Annals of Emergency Medicine in January of this year, so it's hot off the press. Uh, it's by Wu et al. out of Yale. Um, and the question they were asking was, is it cost-effective to obtain MRI for cervical spine clearance after negative CT in neurointact patient after blunt trauma? Um, so we all know the Nexus and Canadian CT rules are both useful and pretty sensitive for determining who needs imaging after trauma. Uh, most agree that failing those rules warrants the CT. Uh, essentially, the, the days of the plain C-spine films have pretty much gone the way of the buffalo at this point. After a negative C-spine, CT clearance is accomplished in a variety of ways, really, depending on who the provider is and patient factors, which we talked a little bit about, specifically like the intoxicated population that Sarah just talked about. Uh, one study found that almost 49% of patients had residual C-spine tenderness after a negative CT. And that's one of the most common things we encounter down in the emergency department is we have a negative CT, but this person is still pretty tender. What do we do with that patient? So that's kind of what this article addressed. I chose the article because I've seen various practice patterns here in our institution among our trauma colleagues and among some of our emergency medicine faculty and how do we clear these spine, whether it's FlexX or whether it's MRI or whether it's just sending them home in the collar and having them follow up or just taking the collar off and telling them they'll be fine. So the bottom line from the paper is essentially that MRI is not cost effective for further evaluation of unstable injury in neurointact patients with blunt trauma after a negative CT scan. And the important thing to note that neurointact means they have a, like a normal neurologic exam. So a little bit of the background on the paper this is a little bit different because it's a cost-effective analysis and we don't talk about a lot of those, so I'll try to throw in a few kind of points on um, cost-effective analysis while we're talking about it. Papers from a group that previously performed a meta-analysis looking at the utility of MRI for, for, for cervical spine clearance after blunt trauma, and they found that the pooled incidence of missed clinically significant injury on CT in alert patients was 0.011%. In that study, they defined clinically significant as unstable injuries with neurologic injury or potential for deterioration based on the injury pattern. Their conclusions in that paper essentially said the utility of MRI and blunt cervical spine injury, its timing and its cost effectiveness needs further study, so hence the paper we'll be discussing today. Paper is a, actually a cost utility analysis, which is a subset of a cost effective analysis. Without going into too much detail, cost effective analysis is a type of Economic analysis that compares both the clinical outcomes and cost of a new treatment compared to the current treatment options and uh, their cost. Outcomes are expressed in something called quality adjusted life years, which is essentially calculated by taking the length of time that would be affected by the outcome or injury and multiplying it by the utility value that's assigned to that period of time. So essentially the life expectancy after the injury times whatever the utility that injury gives the patient. For example, in this study, life expectancy with a cord injury resulting in tetraplegia was 24 years and the utility of each of those years was 0.39. And the uh, cost utility involves expressing the outcomes in terms of 
something called the incremental cost effective ratio, ratio, which is essentially the ratio of the change in cost to the change in outcomes when comparing the new treatment versus the old treatment. Uh, I'll define a few more of those terms specific to cost effectiveness studies along the way, but uh, we'll jump into the, the paper here. For their methods, they uh, chose to use a decision analytic model, which combines essentially clinical parameters um, from published literature and other randomized controlled trials and observational studies, and also use some Medicare reimbursement information and some, some information from the uh, National Spinal Cord Injury Database to essentially put into their model. And the model they use is something called a Markov model, which uh, essentially is a computer-based model that allows for inputs of various variables over time. And the ones that were kind of inputted into this were the, the injury type, the imaging, the treatment options, and the outcome. They put this into this model and came up with 10,000 different iterations or distinct, to represent like 10,000 distinct patients and kind of the, the outcomes. It produced values needed to put into that incremental cost-effective ratio we just talked about. However, along the way, they performed single and multivariate sensitivity analysis to try to compensate for some of the input data and the variance uh, in that data. Uh, one of the inherent limitations to model-based decision analyses is that there's variability in this data that you collect from the literature depending on which articles you're reading or you know the most current literature um, which could certainly significantly affect the outcomes of the study so a way to try to compensate for that and make up for that variance in the or the possibilities of that input data is to perform sensitivity analyses and specifically to our paper they varied the negative, pre negative predictive value of the initial CT, the percentage of missed unstable injuries that became tetraplegia, uh, the risk of litigation, and the percentage of patient who wore a collar and actually went on to still develop a permanent injury. And again, this, this variance allows for some strengthening of the generalizability of the study results. Um, because if one one of the inputs changed the results significantly, there would we would clearly need some more uh, research done in that area to kind of clarify that parameter. Uh, the base model for this was you can essentially think of as the control is a 40-year-old neurologically intact patient with a negative CT after blunt after blunt trauma, and there was two strategies they wanted to look up: no follow-up and then MRI follow-up. This is where a lot of the numbers come into the picture, and I'll kind of go through a few of those, but it'll, we'll have a link to the article online which you can look up to. You can look at some tables that will help kind of summarizes info. So in the first strategy is the no follow-up arm. The result of the CT was either a true negative, which was set at 99.28% as derived from the previous meta-analyses, or a false negative, which was 0.72%. And these true negative patients went on to live a healthy life, were signed a utility of each of those years of 1.0, and their life expectancy was 40 years. Um, if it was a false negative, then 29% of those patients estimated to go on to have either para or tetraplegia, and 71% had no permanent deficit. Uh, the life expectancy for a paraplegia was 34 years with a utility of 0.75, and 24 years for tetraplegia with a utility of 0.39. The second strategy was the MRI follow-up group. Uh, in this group, there are four potential outcomes, being a true positive, a false positive, a true negative, and a false negative uh, for the MRI results. And the true negative arm, which was set at 67%, which again is derived from the previous published literature. So a true negative arm, the patient would be cleared from a C-spine injury. Their additional cost would be the cost of the MRI, but they would have no reduction in their health state, so they'd have a utility of 1.0. True positive patients, which was 0.57%, receiving an MRI would recover fully after collar mobilization in 45%, or still experience a cord injury despite wearing the collar and have permanent deficits, which was 55%. And then false positive MRI was actually 32%, 
uh, based on the literature. And then in either, both the true and the false positive cases, patients had to wear a semi-rigid collar for six weeks. And during that six weeks, regardless of their injury, they were assigned a utility of 0.95. The final kind of outcome in the MRI follow-up group was false negatives. And that was set at 0.15%. And they would be at risk of a missed injury turning into uh, para or tetraplegia, which was set at 29% or go on to not have any permanent deficits, and that was uh, 71%. In addition to having wearing the collar, pressure ulcer was a complication from collar mobilization. This was estimated at 5.2% of patients, and this utility was 0.68. They didn't, they didn't specify how long they were given that utility for and how long they presumed people to kind of suffer the consequences of having pressure ulcers. Uh, the costs that were included in this that were varied were the yearly health care and living expenses and those directly attributable to the injury, but not counting indirect costs such as lost wages or productivity. And for the cost variables, when they did their sensitivity analysis, they included a multiplier essentially saying they varied the cost from 0.1 of its actual or of the documented cost in the literature to up to 100 times greater than the documented cost to see at what point the cost would change the uh, of outcomes. All these percentages were used in this uh, base model and then over the various uh, sensitivity analysis they would they'd vary those inputs across their ranges. So the results what did they find? They found MRI was both more expensive and had less utility. So for injuries resulting in tetraplegia no follow-up cost $6,432 with a utility of 24.08 quality adjusted life years. The MRI follow-up group was nearly twice as expensive at $11,477 with a utility of 24.03 quality adjusted life years. So this making this uh, the no follow-up group the dominant strategy here. Found similar results when paraplegia uh, was the outcome of permanent neurologic deficit. Uh, the costs were lower in both groups, but again, the uh, quality adjusted life years was still higher in the no follow-up group. Because the MRI has both a higher cost and a lower utility, that ratio that we talked about earlier, the incremental cost-effective ratio, essentially is no longer meaningful to this base calculation. So then they went into these sensitivity analyses, uh, and I won't talk about all of them, but I'll kind of point out a few highlights that I thought were interesting from the paper. So no follow-up was the cheaper and more effective strategy in all 10,000 of their iterations when they varied, when they did all of the essentially uh, models coming up with different patients based on that input information. No follow-up was cheaper and more effective in all of those. Uh, when the negative predictive value of this initial CT was varied from 0 to 100% negative predictive value, no follow-up was still the dominant strategy in, throughout the entire range. And there were four scenarios when MRI became the dominant strategy in the sensitivity analyses. One of these was when risk of missed unstable injuries on the initial CT developing into permanent neurologic injuries was greater than 64%. And again, that was set at 29% based on the literature. So if the, the, the risk was higher than 64%, then it was more cost-effective to get an MRI. Again, when the risk of developing a permanent neurologic deficit for patients with an unstable injury who received a collar was less than 19.7%. And from the literature, that, that value, the best we have is 55%. One other incidence is when the initial year costs were 1.95 times as high or the subsequent year cost or 3.7 times higher, MRI became more cost-effective. And then finally, they did a analysis looking at the risk of litigation from missed unstable injury leading to tetraplegia. And when that risk was assumed to be greater than 27%, the MRI at that point became the dominant strategy, meaning it was more effective. 
Uh, so the strength of the paper, I think this really just offers further support the MRI and these neurologically intact patient doesn't really offer any additional utility. And it also points out that there's some consequences to unnecessary imaging, such as, you know, the pressure ulcers, incidental findings, false positive leading to like even potential procedures or surgical stabilization, and obviously the cost themselves. So what are the limitations? The limitations of this paper are really limitations which are really inherent to all cost-effectiveness studies, especially those that use these decision models that we mentioned, rather than collecting cost and utility data alongside um, RCTs. So there are some models that develop their, their cost and their inputs and also the utility alongside and performing an RCT, and those have a little bit more internal validity than models like the one we're discussing here. So a couple of the biggest limitations that stood out to me was there's really a paucity of like good data and, and there's also like significant heterogeneity in the literature about these published values for the clinical parameters that were used as this input. You know, the negative predictive value of the CT varies a lot. The sensitivity and specificity of MRI varies a lot. And the percent of people going on to have permanent injuries with collars, all of these things varied a lot. Um, and while... Sensitivity analyses do help to compensate for this variability somewhat. Um, you know, it's obvious that if the control assumptions are flawed, then the results are are prone to inaccuracy. And so, I think there needs to be more kind of robust literature and more agreement on what these actual input values are. Um, another thing, the unstable injuries um, is a pretty heterogeneous term in the literature. Um, so, multiple studies could have included slightly different patients that were missed. Um, when compared to studies that used a different definition for what a truly unstable injury was. Um, a couple other things. Assigning utility to injury patterns um, is somewhat abstract, and utility really has a wide range of meaning de depending on who you're applying it to, based on you know patient age, their baseline function, their comorbidities. I think it's difficult to standardize a utility value to put on patients' lives going forward, going forward depending on their injury. One of the most frustrating things for me is it's really hard to replicate their numbers and figure out how they actually got the numbers they did for the study because it's such a complex model that they used um, to come up with the numbers. So you really, it's really hard to kind of take their raw data and come up with like the numbers they got for how much it costs for follow-up and get these kind of quality-adjusted life years. So it's, it's difficult to really trace back how they got to the numbers they did. I think there's a lot of kind of mathematical magic that happens in these uh, cost-effective analyses, which is which can be confusing to the readers. One thing that also stood out is it didn't really offer an option for like a C-collar after a negative CT if you still have pain and then go home and follow up and see how your check on you in a week or two weeks and see that I think that might, there's a potential that that could show a subset of patients that might be one of those, the rare missed initial injuries on CT that if they're still having pain at X number of time, they could they get at that point get an MRI and that might kind of pick up some of these missed ones. Um, and then finally, you're talking about costs and benefits here and you got to think about whose costs and whose benefits you're talking about. Um, you know, in urban centers, a lot of these costs go more to the system. Um, just if the patient's unable to pay or based on the payer source and that might be different depending on where you work if you're in the community or in a more urban setting. So you have to think about viewing these costs and utilities from a patient standpoint or their family or the health system or society as a whole, and I think that can change to uh, your inter that can really change your interpretation of the data on the backside. So uh, my takeaway from this is this is just more support that in an alert 
neurointact patient with a negative CT of the cervical spine, that MRI really up ends up costing more and really doesn't gain the patient or the system anything in the long run. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the latest episode of the Taming the Shrew podcast. We hope to see you next time.